0: This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the new novel, Marlena, first with the author, Julie Bunton, and then with my guests, Sam Purdy and Jessica Sager. And stay tuned at the end of our show. For a middle grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. Tell me what you can't forget, and I'll tell you who you are. So many things Kat can't forget about the year she was 15. It was the year her father left her mother. The year they moved to a place that was rural and poor and shut down any dreams of something better. The year she stopped going to school and started having sex and learned to equate drinking with escape. The year she met Marlena. The year Marlena died. I've never believed in the idea of an innocent bystander, Cat tells us from 20 years later, looking back. The act of watching changes what happens. The act of telling, too. What to leave out and what to put in. What will explain what happened to Marlena and what made Cat who she is. What's fair and what isn't. What's true and what's not. This is a novel about secrets and lies. About friendship and love. About guilt and survival. About the things we omit and how they matter as much or more than the things that we say. I had the opportunity to talk with author Julie Bunton last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Julie Bunton is from Michigan and now lives in Brooklyn. She teaches writing at Marymount Manhattan College and is the director of writing programs at Catapult. Marlena is her first novel. Julie, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Julie, I wanted to start by talking about a line on page 231 where Kat says, quote, sometimes I wonder how I'd tell this if I didn't have so many books rattling around inside me. Now, my high school English teacher, Dr. Shapiro, who I always mention on this show, used to talk about moments in the text where you can see the author what he used to call peeking through, and you're not cat, and I'm not saying that you are, but it felt like one of those moments to me where the author was peeking through, and so I wanted to ask you what books did you feel rattling around inside you when you wrote this, and did you feel like they helped shape this novel?
1: Yeah, that's a lovely, lovely question, and i it mean the me last movie that you pulled pulled that part out. I think it it's kind of almost hard to to know where to start when I talk about the books that I think influenced Marlena. I, I'm like so many writers. I mean, I'm sure you hear this all the time. I was a reader first and like a very passionate full, full like days reading. I mean, I think my whole childhood was spent reading and, and to the point where like a third grade teacher was worried about me. It was like a thing. And so I come, I come to writing very much as a reader. And, and I think, you know, cat isn't, cat isn't me. And I've, I've written about that before. And I, I feel like the distinction between her as a narrator and me as a real person, as an author, it's important to make, but at the same time, it would be, it would be a little bit coy to pretend that we're not alike in how we see the world. Um, and that's, I think, one of the ways in which we are most alike, Kat and I, and it's how she filters everything through the perspective of her reading life, because she is sort of a reader in, in very much the same way that I was. It's how she makes sense of her experience. She's always a little bit the outsider, like so many narrators are. Some of the books that informed this one, I mean, everything from, like, Stephen King's entire, (laughs) entire, like, everything he's ever written. I was a huge Stephen King fan and read a lot of, um, like, lower-brow fiction growing up as a kid, but also loved, um, like, big, juicy novels like Dickens. David Copperfield is a book that I've returned to over and over and over again. I love Laurie Moore, who was also my, my thesis advisor in grad school. Who Will Run the Frog Hospital is a book that I... In some way, in some ways, I think I was trying to like write my own version of that book, or or maybe that's not exactly right, but I wanted to I wanted to capture something like she did. I thought it was so so sort of perfectly evocative of this tension between being a teenager and then becoming an adult. Um, I love the Elena Ferrante books, which I read sort of as I was revising the this novel. We the Animals by Justin Torres was really kind of blew my mind. Books with great energetic voices like Herzog even though I think it's a little sexist. I love Saul Bellow anyways, <laughs> Middlemarch. So those books are very different, but I think kind of all of those stories and how they change the way you think about your experience, It's I wanted to capture that kind of thinking and the way that Kat was thinking about her own experience, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I, one of the things I find interesting about Kat is her unreliability as a narrator and her forthrightness about that. And I wondered if there were models... In literature that you were thinking about as you wrote her?
1: Yeah, well, so something that was very much on my mind as I wrote this book and I think is on Kat's mind as a narrator is who, and there's a book recently, my friend Kayla Ray Whitaker, I think she was on your show. She wrote was. The
0: yes, and yeah, such a she, good book.
1: Yeah, I love that book. I, she She talks about this in her novel in a beautiful way, but who gets to tell someone else's story and what responsibility do you have to their story and how can you tell I mean this is really Cat's story it's not Marlena's story but that act of memory and of remembrance and of trying to conjure someone else via the act of storytelling like that is an unreliable act and Cat is always aware of that and as a writer I feel like very aware of that and it felt like dishonest or something to not interact with that that very fundamental aspect of what storytelling is like I'm I'm very interested in that as a writer the space between what happened and, and what you remember and how you tell it. Like there's, it's almost like a triangle and Kat wants to get back to the real memory, but she can't. So that's part of the grieving process almost for her, I think, is that she, she can only get as close as she can get through this act of storytelling or remembering, but it's not close enough because it won't bring somebody back. So that, that was really on my mind. But in terms of examples of that, I mean, anything with like a first person narrator really I love Claire Messud. Did you read *The Woman Upstairs*? That's an 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 example. I think she does that sort of beautifully. Other, other. I mean, this is a little different. It doesn't. It's not quite the same in terms of narrator. But *The Blind Assassin* by Margaret Atwood was something that was on my mind a lot too. A book about the process of making a book, like the that every book is sort of about what it means to write a book. And in my book, that's very explicit, and other books less so. But That was another, you know, another text that I looked at really closely.
0: I think that I mentioned this to you once before when we when we corresponded, but I was found myself thinking a lot about Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. Um, Yeah, I
1: love that book.
0: There's that section where he he will start a chapter by saying this is true. And then you read this amazing evocative story and your heart is just wrenched out of your chest. And then you turn the page and he says, I made that all up yeah and it reminded me very much of what you were doing especially in you have this one chapter that is titled omissions mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. following the story that you tell of this day that she has with marlena you turn the page and you have this well and here are all the things i left out in telling that. Yeah. like to make it a story i had to leave some things out and that kind of reader manipulation for a purpose reminded me very much of tim o'brien
1: Yeah, thank you. That's such a high compliment. I really adore that book. And I'm sure that that I was thinking of that, too, which is something that I read sort of during the early years of college, thinking a lot about what it means to tell a story. But yeah, like, what I mean, the question that every novelist asks, like, I'm sure, in their darkest hours, or their brightest hours, or just all the time, like, what is true? That's just something that I think I found myself sort of obsessed with, like, in in this book for these girls, and especially in the act of of looking back. So yeah. And, and how much Kat wishes things were different. And, and, you know,
0: she can't really control that. Right. But sometimes in the retelling, you you can control that a little.
1: Right. You can control it in the retelling. And then it's true. Like that's an act that you have complete control over and Kat's aware of that, right? Like everything she's giving you is what she decides to say or not say. So letting the reader in is almost like her, it's almost like a way for her to be more truthful. It, but also because she's acknowledging that you can't trust her in this very direct way. But also, I mean, I think it gets at to the fact that memories are so unreliable. Like you remember one thing one way, because it's, you get caught up in your own, you know, you that, like that dinner with your mom, you remember it a certain way. And then two days later, you're mad at your mom, and you remember it an entirely different way, kind of depending on where you are as the person, you know, considering how it went, if that,
0: Right, right. Or, Or sometimes because you've told it a certain way and you've told it that way so many times, that becomes the truthful version. And then when you're confronted with some consistency or some detail that isn't in your telling, you remember it a different way, but you have kind of convinced your memory to be shaped.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. My siblings and I have that all the time. We'll be talking about the same event in childhood and I remember it very specifically a certain way and then they all have like different you know, they're the details that they throw in. I'm like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> Whose story? I it couldn't have been like that. Like it's winter, not summer. And so all of those things, I think it's what makes for me, all of the, all of those kinds of differences in how we tell stories and how we look at our own memories and interrogate our own pasts. It's just like the most fascinating thing about about writing to me.
0: So you make this choice to tell us at the very beginning that Merlina dies. Mm-hmm. I think it's on page six or page seven that we know that. Yeah. I guess I wanted you to talk a little bit about that choice to not leave us in suspense and to find out what happens to her, but to tell us right away.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm grateful that you asked that, that, you know, it's funny. I'm trying to keep myself as closed off as possible from uh, things like Goodreads and like, just in general, just as a sort of protective mechanism. But it's something that I get mixed. People have strong feelings about, I think if you're looking for like a mystery or a thriller, Though I think there are elements of the story that are mystery in the sense that Kat's trying to figure something out. It's not a traditional thriller or a mystery. And in a traditional like literary, even like a literary thriller, you find out how the death happened. And that is kind of, I wanted to play with those conventions, but you don't usually find out the whole thing in the first six pages as, you know, I kind of like lay out the story there. And for me, that was really because this isn't a story about how, it's not like a suspense story about how Merlina dies, though it is about how Merlina dies to a certain extent. It's really about grief um, and memory and the relationship we have to the things that we, you know, the things in our past that we, that sort of change who we are. Um, so that was a different kind of like plot mission than outlining, like she gets closer and closer and closer to the critical moment at which the thing happens or teasing out the mystery of her death and then finding out that with a twist at the end that everything we thought was different. You know, it's not that kind of story. But I did have editors when the book was on submission who, you know, were had questions about that. They were like, what if we found out later? And I just remember thinking, like, that's not what this story is about. <laughs> My editor who I wound up with was always a very, like, why would anyone even ask that question? Mm-hmm, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or say, suggest it as an alternative way. So I knew she was the right person for me.
0: Did it always <laughs> start that way?
1: It always started that way. The beginning and the ending were always, always as they are essentially i'm so much more interested in the in like the emotional journey than i am in some of those other more like suspense structures or just the grieving process i think and i think too like one thing that was a key to figuring out how the book was going to be structured was thinking about cat's drinking in relationship to that that year as this problem in her in her present life that she doesn't know how to untangle or like solve that is so rooted in that time. It's when she first started. It's like when everything sort of changed and she kind of isn't aware of that until she's processed this whole this whole story again.
0: And and was it always this back and forth between the present day and that year when she's 15?
1: Yeah. I wanted the past the the story in the past, the girl's, I mean that's really the vividness and like aliveness sort of intensity of that year. And I wanted that to be, you know, the real, like alive part of the book, if that makes sense. And Kat's present to be dull or something in comparison. But I, I had to think a lot about how to structure those moments. And it's really just a very short period of time that the narrative present takes place. And it's like two days or something. I'm i like, how long is it? I can't remember. Um, I think it's about two days. And that was important to me, too, just how big the past can be, even as you go about your life, you know, in your early 30s, like completely separate from that world that you once, you know, was everything to you and yet still defines you or determines your choices on some level sort of all the time.
0: When you when you did the actual writing, did you write it in like a a linear way or did you write the Michigan sections, the sections of in the past in one chunk? and the sections in the present in another and interweave them. I'm always really curious about writer's process, especially when you have a book that has this kind of complicated narrative structure the way yours does.
1: Yeah, I, I wrote the Michigan sections. So I I did something a little bit dramatic with this book and then I basically like rewrote it after I, after I sold it. So I, I wasn't something that I was expecting to do or that I was asked to do. It was just this weird thing where I was looking at the book and thinking about the question of, why Kat was going back to this moment now, and I I knew that there was an answer there in her character in the narrative present, which was really not even broken out into sections at that point, was just sort of touched upon, and I knew that there was something there. And the more that I wrote her in in her sort her sort of now, the more that I I I realized that that was like the key to the book in a sense, and it was really about her relationship to alcohol. And so that kind of like from that point on the whole book sort of fell into place for me, but writing that was like a, a, one of the most intense writing experiences of my life. Like I was writing in the morning from like six to nine, going to work, coming home, eating dinner, writing again until I went to bed. And then writing for like eight hours on the weekends until I wrote out that whole section. And a lot of that wound up getting cut, but I did kind of work that into the original story and then cut a ton of that too. So the book became smaller. And then the narrative present became a bigger part of the story at the same time. And this all happened after I sold it. My editor was like, you just turned in a different book mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: that I bought. And I, 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 I like it. <laughs>
1: she was so happy. She was like, really excited, actually. But it was it was it was really liberating um, to think about because I there was a question that had been bothering me when I looked at the draft. I just kept thinking, like, there's something wrong with Cat in the narrative present. That like, there's something wrong. What is that thing? And and I kind of had to write my way into it. Um, and it was very, it was, it was fun. I mean, that sounds weird to say because I, I know my book is a sad book, but it was a really intense and fun writing process.
0: You know, when you, when you do what you do, which is you have this, this this gap in time that is that is very that is filled in only in the most sketchy of ways, right? So mm-hmm. we have a lot of Cat this year that she's fifteen, turned sixteen. And we have these moments of her about 20 years later, but the in-between time, very sketchy, right? We know a little bit about her senior year of high school and applying to college and then just like the barest bit about her Mm -hmm. college years. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like that's a very dangerous thing to do because you can end up feeling like there's this new character and you don't know how this person became that person or there's just been too much left out. It feels too convenient. Right. Right. Um, And I've read books where there are these big jumps in time and I find myself feeling dissatisfied because it feels like it was kind of the easy way out to not have to explain things. I didn't feel like that here, but I wonder if you thought about that and if you worried about that and your choice to leave out so many of those details of the intervening years.
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I, I did and didn't. I definitely know what you mean i've I've experienced that too in in novels that I've read over over the years. but I think that just thinking like not to get super technical, but thinking about what if you think of it as almost two stories like layered on top of each other, I wanted the the cat story and the narrative present to feel like a full story. but it's just a shorter story <laughs> in a lot of ways.
2: like mm-hmm.
1: it's it's two days. It's really about it's a, and again, it's really I think about her. This person coming back into her life that's completely unexpected, that kind of kickstarts this um, this memory, basically this long extended memory that it is what the majority of the book is. So it, do, it wouldn't have made sense in that story to have like a ton of back information about like, how did Kat meet her husband? How did she do this? What is You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. just the story of those two days. It's the story of Sal. It's the story of Kat being her drinking being right on the edge of something that's threatening to swallow her whole.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Whether or not she's able to pull herself back from that. But I didn't want to go through like, here's a history of cats drinking in her twenties. I touch on it a little bit, but that would have been like, I think it would have been like, if you read a short story and you're like, why is this like, why are we getting like all of this? Like what what was really important to me was kind of giving this like glimpse into her day-to-day life, the texture of it. And And making room for this kind of expansive experience that's driving her kind of even if she wasn't aware of it in other moments of her life, but she is aware of now because of Sal and because she's thinking about it suddenly in this new way.
0: Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, there's a there's a number of points in the book where Kat seems to be addressing her remarks to us as the reader, but there are two points towards the end where that shifts And she Mm -hmm. turns and she speaks directly to Marlena. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if you could also talk a little bit about your choice to do that. And again, if that just sort of came to you in the writing or that that was a really deliberate, thought out choice in the revision process. And yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I love these questions. They're, They're so interesting. It... Because it, it really was- struck
0: it was a really striking moment to me like it was a real it, it in some ways felt to me like the whole time she had been talking to Marlena and so I had that- been taking it as talking to me, but all of a sudden I realized that was not what she was doing and it changed yeah. the way I read everything that came before in, in a certain kind of way,
1: yeah, I would say that there's some tr- like there's some truth so I think that there is a certain I mean, we were talking earlier about books in which unreliability, narrators that acknowledge their own unreliability or books that know that they're books. And I love that as a reader. I mean, I just, I love when the writer knows I'm there, you know, because a book is a book. It's a crafted, very intensely constructed thing. And the artifice of like pretending it's not has always seemed like so odd to me. So I love, I'm thinking now of Carol Shields, uh, The Stone Diary is a book that I love where it's (laughs) like, she's, you're just constantly aware that this is a text and text sounds kind of cold, but, but I think that I, that I always wanted the reader to know I was, I I knew they were there and that we were together kind of in this story. So there's that element of it. But, but I also think that when you're writing, you think of one reader in particular kind of, or I do, I guess. And I, I did, I was thinking of Marlena thinking about who Kat was talking to and, it would, it would be her. Uh, so I, I think those moments where it breaks open and she addresses Marlena directly are, because in a sense, this is really for her all along, or as she sort of, it's sort of self-absorbed of her to say, but I think it's true in the story of how this is, this is still, you know, Cat trying to figure a lot of stuff out, this other version of herself that she's like left behind. So I think there's all of those layers to it. But, but yeah, I think that's really, I'm glad you read it that way, because I think there's, I think that's basically true. <laughs> like, there's a certain level of intimacy and honesty that I could give Kat when she's speaking to her, her best friend, than I could even just thinking about it as the reader, even though I do think that's a very intimate relationship,
0: you know. And in some ways, it then made the book feel to me almost like an apology to Marlene. Yeah. Or, you know, that 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 Kat has spent this whole time trying to understand why she is the one who gets to go on and have this life and Marlena never did. And she's trying to explain it to herself and to Marlena and to have Marlena's maybe forgiveness for it.
1: Yeah. I think that there's definitely, there's definitely something, something to that, that, that like made, it it makes me almost like a little bit of emotional to hear it that way. But I think it's true. I think it's true. I think she is looking for that. When you've escaped a situation and you're the survivor you get to be the one who tells the story and there's something loving about that, but there's something very unfair about it too. Marlena isn't the one that gets to tell her own story, that that's been taken away from her. I think Kat's aware of that and is sorry, you know, like deeply sorry for that.
0: So I was interested to hear you say that this, that the book always ended the same way. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the ending, because I think when you start a book and you kind of start with the ending, as you do here, with knowing that Marlena has died, you kind of divorced yourself from what we, you know, learn in elementary school is like your typical narrative structure, right? Where you have Mm -hmm. your conflict, your climax, your resolution, and there's an, you, you kind of follow that formula in knowing where to end. So when you don't have that formula to follow, how do you know, you know, where you're headed or what the right ending is? And I also am curious about whether you feel that this is a happy ending and if that's something that you wanted to give to Kat?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, so it's a very character driven story. And it all I think in terms of thinking about it, like losing some of the elements of traditional narrative structure, I wanted to kind of build those in, in different ways. Like Kat, for me, that, that is kind of layered in from Cat trying to figure out how to tell this story at all so all of the reading like all of the right like she thinks maybe she wants to write things she kind of like tries she doesn't know she's also throughout very um afraid of her own power i guess is one way to put it or or passive is just another very more simple way to put it but her friendship with marlena empowers her to be less that way and even after this sort of terrible life-defining tragedy occurs she's stronger for it and is able to take ownership of her own experience in a way that she isn't in the beginning of the of the book. So I think that process of her kind of gaining gaining that power is something that I carefully wanted to map out, like section by section, and and kind of the undoing of it with her drinking, kind of as an op- oppositional force in the narrative present, was something else I was thinking about. But you know the the fact that Cat has gotten to the place where she can tell this story, so the ending really, um, which is her declaration of that, is is to me a happy ending. It's actually like, I, I know some readers won't see it that way and I, that's fine too because it's not like a tidy, like she no longer drinks and she's totally processed all this shit and she has no more survivor's guilt and she's <laughs> all good. <laughs> but like, I think that she is actually all, all good in a, in a way. I think that if you have an experience that defines you and is in some way traumatic and speaking as a person and a writer now, like you telling your story or the process of claiming that story and and pinning it down is, is a healing process. And I don't mean to say that the novel is like just catharsis for Kat, though I think there's an element of that. But I think that that for her is, is, is happy, like, even though it's not like, like a joyful day, kind of happy. I think it's actually like an immensely positive ending. It's like her way of figuring out how to take control over something that she felt powerless over. And that includes the, her struggle with alcohol. And, f- and for, I mean, who know like, again, who knows if this is a story Marlena would want her to tell. And I feel like Kat's like very aware of that. And we talked before about how Marlena, like the, tra- one of the tragedies, one of the things that Kat's struggling with is that Marlena can't tell her own stories anymore. So how dare Kat like even try, but, but it is, and I do think of it as like an act of love in that sense too, because remembering somebody is an act of love. Like even if you don't get them right, or they wouldn't quite like how you did it it's, it's a loving act. So it's, it's got those, I hope that it has all of that kind of complexity in it as a statement and like a gesture and an ending note.
0: Well, Julie, it has been great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Sid, thank you so much. Those questions were amazing. Thank you. It was really so nice.
0: I'm Sid Oppenheimer and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. take a moment to introduce my guests, Sam Purdy and Jessica Sager. Sam last appeared on Book Talk discussing Mark Sloka's novel, Brewster, and I had to have him back because this novel reminded me of that one in powerful ways. If you liked this one, go read that one next. Jessica was on Book Talk discussing Brewster, too, and she's been back a couple of times since, most recently talking about Laurie Frankel's novel, This Is How It Always Is. Jessica and Sam, it's so nice to have the three of us together again to talk about a great book.
3: Great to be with you guys.
0: I'm so glad to be here. So I wanted to start by maybe having each of us talk about one moment in the book that really stayed with us. I'm curious to hear which moments you two pick.
3: I'll I'll jump into one that wasn't so much of a plot moment, though there are plenty of those, but was more of a sort of character and reflective moment. And I think it came up in the interview you just uh, did with Julie. Julie which was, towards the end, one of those moments when Kat turns to to Marlena, it sounds like, and says, you know, actually, adulthood really isn't so bad. It's actually even better than we thought. And on 246, she says, being an adult, it is not the same. It is not actually anything like what we wanted, what we imagined for ourselves, but Marlena, mostly it's better. Sometimes I'm so grateful, it feels like a miracle. And for me, in light of the you know total angst and real angst not just sort of invented struggle of being a 15 year old or a 17 year old in Marlena's case that the the sort of past of the book is occupied with i thought that was a really striking uh, moment that in the sort of reflection on age and maturity and forming one's identity they really stuck with me
4: you know that's so funny because the moment that immediately came to me kind of bookends yours And it's actually very near the beginning of the book on page 15, where Kat has just come to this new place. She is really just beginning the journey towards adulthood. And she takes this lighter gun and goes out to smoke a cigarette, which seems like this very grown up thing to do. And she sees Marlena for the first time. And there's this mystery around this girl, Marlena, around this man that she's with. And it's charged with threat, but also with possibility in the way that when you are sort of a young teenager, just getting ready to figure out the world, everything seems charged with this electric possibility. And what I love about what you just shared is it makes me recognize that she begins in possibility. There's, you know, a good 15 years of struggle, which we see in the book, but in a way she ends with that same sense of possibility regained which actually makes me feel more hopeful about the end of this book than I than I did until just now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting Jessica because right after that passage that Sam quoted, she speaks to Marlena again and she says because Marlena every day you get to try again. And that sense of possibility is reiterated with that. But it's interesting because both of you cite moments that have to do with Marlena which makes sense. The book is called Marlena, it's about primarily about the relationship, but the moment I keep returning to is one that's also kind of a moment of reflection towards the end. And she's talking about her mom and she's talking about the year that she was 30 and that she tried to be sober and how she had just gotten a raise and she'd just gotten engaged. And she went to Las Vegas with her mom and her mom every night would say, Oh, come on, just have a drink with me. Even though her mom knew, you know, that she was trying not to drink. And that was the moment that I kept coming back to. For some reason, I found that so incredibly heartbreaking. Um, And she says when she returned to New York, she didn't tell, she didn't talk about those drinks at her meetings and she didn't tell her fiance about them. And she says, I was with my mom. How could I say no? I wonder what your reaction was to that.
4: I had a a different reaction than sadness. I guess I viewed those moments almost with a kind of protective tenderness, which I think was my primary reaction through the book to Kat's mom, perhaps because it's Kat's reaction. Um, I'm actually really glad that you bring up her mom because I feel like it would be very easy to overlook her In a discussion of the book, and yet for all her faults, there's something so wonderful about that character. You know, there's this passage on 226 where Kat is talking about how she and Marlena have these very different life experiences. And she says, in the kitchen with mom, the kitchen that was always clean, where there was always something to eat where the water flowed predictably from the tap and behind every cabinet door were dishes, only dishes. I saw how wrong I was to feel like Marlena and I had so much in common and how lucky because here was the difference that mattered. My skinny mom with her Chardonnay smell, right? Of course, her mom's an alcoholic. And her forgetting to unplug the flat iron with her corny jokes and her cleaning gloves, My mom who refused to stop loving me, who made dumb mistakes and drank too much and was my twin in laughter. My mom who would never, ever leave. And I think that sense of commitment of never leaving for me transcends um, even the mom's uh, drinking and the way in which her drinking seduces Kat into doing the
2: same.
0: But I... I think that's almost why that moment at the end killed me more because I think that Kat, as she has aged, has come to have this great compassion and tenderness for her mom, has forgiven her for the things that she had trouble forgiving her for when she was a teenager. And we understand in some ways that she was a woman without a lot of choices who was doing the best that she could, but When she's in Las Vegas and she's remarried and her life is pretty good, it seems so gratuitous to kind of hold Cat back from trying to be better. And I felt like the compassion that Cat gives her mom is almost a way that she, it's, it's the thing that she does throughout the novel where she keeps saying, Marlena had it so much worse, so I really didn't have it that bad. And my reaction kept being, you both had it bad. Like, yeah, Marlena had it worse, but yours was pretty bad. And you're entitled to your own story. You know, that Marlena's story being worse or having a more tragic ending doesn't make yours any harder to have lived through.
3: But I think she... It may be in some ways easier to just sort of reject her mother the way that in some way she ends up doing to with after trying and trying and trying with her father with that email that she sends. You know, I'm, I've called you. You're not picking up. We're basically through. And I think that she sort of wants the challenge of the four parents in her life or her friend Marlena's life. It actually is sort of a virtue that this woman is still there, is still around, is helping her, you know, get back to uh, her boarding school for the year after Marlena dies. I I think that it is a sort of willful choice that she knows, uh, uh, you know, th- this may be a low bar, but this woman's here and I, I, I can't cut her out of me. A surgery can't remove our parents. And maybe we'll come back to this question of who influences us. But I think that this is a choice that she makes. And maybe because it's sort of a willful one, she feels okay sometimes succumbing to you know, as an adult, what her mom may pull her into.
4: But I think this question of influence is actually really so interesting, right? I mean, Sid, this is part of what you're getting at too, I think, right? I mean, um, Kat chooses always to forgive. Kat also always assumes that it is not her story. And there is so much that she thinks about, about how she has been shaped by, Marlena, how she has been shaped by the people in her life. The book is called Marlena. It's not called Cat. But she never thinks as much about how she may have changed Marlena, how she may have been the actor, how it might be her story in the end, you know, taking ownership until maybe the very end of the book.
3: We read a lot of almost the impossibility of imagining Cat without Marlena, Um, but don't often get the sort of the reflection of the other.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that. I do want to say one final thing about the mom, which is I, you know, as much as I hate that moment in Las Vegas, I also really like it because I think it complicates things. I think that what the two of you are saying would make it easy in a way to say, oh, well, as a teenager, of course, she hated her mom in the way that teenage girls do, but she was too short-sighted to see that the most important thing was that her mom stayed and her mom is actually a hero. And we could read it that way, but this moment in Las Vegas, for which she does not judge her mom, lets us the reader see that her mom is more complicated than that. That her mom is a person—a person who is human and flawed—and who, rather than acknowledge her own alcoholism, but she says to Cat, she says, "If you're an alcoholic, what am I?" And it is too hard for her to confront that. It is easier for her to sacrifice her daughter, and that is what she's doing. And I think we can and should judge her for that, even while we might applaud her for doing her best in lots of other ways. And the book is complicated in that way. It doesn't give us sort of easy answers in terms of who any of these characters are.
4: That's right. And, you know, the book portrays a world where, in general, the adults or or the, the so-called adults uh, repeatedly either prey on the children or just, um, at best, sort of fail them in critical moments. And that trajectory is carrying through very vividly in that moment
0: that you describe. Right. And you have that in so many of the adults who, who appear in this novel. You know, the teachers in the school who instead of, for the most part, instead of being there to help the students through what are going through are preying upon them or putting them down or diminishing them. The ones that you're supposed to look to as, you know, the object of authority and, and in whom you place your trust. And over and over again, the people in whom you place your trust let you down.
3: I mean, this, you know, for listeners of at least the last time the three of us were together, you know, this reminded me tremendously of Brewster in a conversation that the three of us had. There, there were some more, I think, redeeming adults here in this book, even if we take out, you know, the character of the mother, there's the interesting role of the social workers who come in and sort of get a, um, a, a bit of credit towards the end for taking a, you know, a caring approach to Marlene and to Sal. And, and, and there is actually one teacher, her literature teacher, whom she mentions appreciating with the questions that he asked her and the flexibility that he gave her to sort of explore beyond um, but I was really struck by the, the experience with Mr. Ratner and actually the connection that the first reaction that Kat has to finding out that Mr. Ratner is her teacher is that this is the teacher that Marlena so despised for his preying on her uh, in past years. And actually, that for Kat, it almost seems like there's a sense of perhaps excitement that there's a connection between her and Marlena for having shared in the same adult either wronging them or, in the case of Kat, sort of potentially wronging her now that she was in his classroom. So even the sort of shared victimization by adults is a sense of connection for for the youth in the book.
0: I want to go back to, to what you said about the ways that Marlena may be shaped by Kat. I think that there is a hint of Kat's acknowledgement of that in that moment when she says... I've never believed in the idea of an innocent bystander. The act of watching changes what happens. Just because you don't touch anything doesn't mean you are exempt. You might be tempted to forgive me for being just 15, in over my head for not knowing what to do, for not understanding. Yet the way even the tiniest choices domino until you're irretrievably grown up, the person you were always going to be, or in Marlena's case, the person you'll never have to be, the world doesn't care that you're just a girl. Let the record show that I was smarter than I looked. And anyway, I touched and so she is conscious that her actions or sometimes her lack of actions, her passivity were formative. I think that she has trouble she has trouble formulating that because it is so tied into her guilt. It is so tied you know if she really starts to think expressively about how she might have impacted Marlena, the question she has to ask which she's implicitly asking throughout the whole book is did Marlena die because of me? Because of what I did or didn't do? As simple as did she die because I didn't wait outside of the pie shop mm-hmm. the way I said I was going to because I got lost in my book and I didn't, wasn't standing outside and so she went wherever she was going to go.
4: Right, right. I, I think this question of bystander and, and, and witness is really central to the whole book. Not only Kat's failure to maybe show up at a moment, but her failure to recognize what was happening to her friend to intervene in some more significant way, even though perhaps it's unfair to expect a 15-year-old to do that, as she herself says she's not off the hook. But then there are so many other bystanders as
0: well, right?
3: The whole crew of friends.
0: Yeah. Jimmy. Jimmy.
3: Jimmy.
0: I mean, let's talk about Jimmy. So Jimmy is Kat's brother, her older brother, who has postponed his college scholarship to move with his mother and his sister to this godforsaken town in Northern Michigan. And he gets a job in a plastics factory. And one of my favorite lines of the whole book is where he says, it's like a Huxley novel. And she says, it was not like a Huxley novel. It was like working in a plastics factory, (laughs) (laughs) which I just thought like that there's cat right there on the page. Um, And he ends up falling for Marlena and becoming involved with her and cat is very threatened by that because she wants to be Marlena's person, um, not in a sexual way, but in a kind of, you know, the primary friend way, wants to be at the center of her life. And, you know, Jimmy is, is, is you know, Marlena is using drugs throughout the whole time that Kat knows her. The drug use worsens, may or may not be connected with her ultimate death, which was ruled an accident. She tripped and, and fell into a river and hit her head and drowned. Um, but that may be because she was high. But, you know, Jimmy knows about that as much as Kat does. Um, And it's not clear what Jimmy knows about some of the other things, like the fact that she kind of, that Marlena exchanged sexual favors in return for drugs from her dealer, you know, that her father was involved in cooking meth, uh, these kinds of things. And Jimmy doesn't do anything. And I think it's interesting that Kat, uh, Kat doesn't judge him. At least I didn't feel like she did. I don't know if you, you thought that there were moments of judgment there.
3: I felt that she came around to accepting his their their, their relationship, especially towards the time after the police uh, discovered uh, Marlena's dad's, you know, meth rail car and, and took Sal away. I think that, you know, there was sort of this familial feeling that came about when Marlena was living with them. Though then they also shared in the feeling of, you know, alienation from Marlena when she sort of retreated back to the barn, feeling enough of this. So I, I, I think that, you know, there was to me, some sense of cat feeling coming back in some of, similar way to what she did with her mom to the sense of Jimmy's here. Jimmy's still with us. Jimmy's helping pay the rent. You know, Jimmy begrudgingly drives me to school when, you know, she doesn't want to be going either. And she walks up, she, he walks her in and, and makes sure, makes sure that she goes. I think that there's a sense of, you know, he hasn't left either. And even if he's sometimes derided for that, like you're supposed to be in college now. I think that her sort of faith that he is there begins to allow for some acceptance of the relationship that he's forming. And, and there isn't a sense of blame that she wouldn't ever see him as closer to Marlena than she was and therefore more blameworthy in her demise
0: you know it's funny i've been thinking about jimmy and sal as kind of mirror images of each other sal being marlena's younger brother but it suddenly occurred to me that in some ways marlena and jimmy are the mirror images of each other because they are both the older sibling who is in some ways taking care of the younger sibling because the parent is not really able to do that both the parent who's left and the parent who's there are not really capable of it and they both fail and the younger sibling because Sal does appear at the end of the book, or throughout, you know, he he appears in the in the current day part of the book, and there's no no judgment or blame or, or real anger there, from Sal, right? There's no from from and 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 similarly from Cat, you know, that mm-hmm. in terms of how they're looking at this older sibling, this older caretaker sibling, there is only kind of a sadness and forgiveness.
4: Except there's one moment when. When Kat has this idea, this terrible idea to have a party at the house where her mother cleans, Mm -hmm. right? And Jimmy, instead of stopping her, comes along and comes along to be with Marlena. But Kat says something like, he wasn't coming to protect me. And you can feel the hurt coming off the page that Jimmy is failing her. In that moment, she actually sees how his desire to find his own sort of escape in being with Marlena is is leading him to fail her in the same way. Maybe that Marlena's desire to escape into, you know, into her pills is
0: leading her to fail Sal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are moments in the time period when she is 15 before Marlena dies, when there is anger at Jimmy. But looking back at it, as there's anger towards her mother uh, in those in, in those teenage years, but looking back, she seems to have an enormous forgiveness for him. Even while, you know, we as the reader can have some detachment to say, he did fail her there, he, you know, and, and maybe we can forgive him for it because he was 19 and he, you know, And what, who was, who was taking care of him? You know, he still needed someone to take care of him and no one was doing that. And yet recognizing that, like, that was still not a good choice that he made. There's also a moment when, when Kat says of Marlena that Marlena always says she loves Sal more than she even loves herself, but she doesn't always act that way. And she doesn't, you know, she, she often leaves Sal in very vulnerable positions so that she herself can escape, whether it's through drugs or through sex or through her time with her friends. And so, again, I see Marlena and Jimmy as sort of mirror images in the ways that they can sometimes be selfish and their professed desire to be the caretakers of others is not always followed through upon.
3: And the fact that, I mean, just talking about Sal and at last you know how he sort of i I view the very very last chapter as something of an epilogue and it sort of really does end with sal and cat in new york and the fact that sal actually kind of has no idea of really what happened who marlena was he actually asks what was she like and those are some of the last words of the book and i think there is something of a um, book ending there as well with this character who sort of actually doesn't know all that's transpired in this in this story meeting up with the person who's telling us the story and is trying to piece together exactly what happened.
0: And that kind of comes back right to the first line, right? Tell me what you can't forget, and I'll tell you who you are. And Sal does forget, right? He he does forget Marlena, and so she's not the one who's made him who he is, and maybe that's in fact in some ways what saves him.
4: You know, it's funny. One of the things that really shimmers through this book for me and and that makes it so tragic that sal can't remember is for all her faults the vividness of marlena you know and the vividness of cat's love for her and the beautiful way in which julie bunton evokes that that love that you have for a friend particularly when you're a teenager and that magic that magic presence that marlena becomes for her so I'm just curious what you guys think about that and about the ways in which the two girls for all the damage they do also somehow seem to maybe make each other stronger fill each other out in important ways.
0: I think that there is some of that and you know she speaks to that by saying in some way she defines herself against who Marlena is all the things that Marlena is she is the the counter to so that together they are one of everything. But to me What was almost more interesting and which I think she's reflecting on is that although there's some truth to that, it is also the way that people in our past become almost fictional characters in our present, especially when we are not connected to them anymore, whether because they've died or because we've just lost touch, but there are certain memories that we burnish and we return to again and again. And those become who that person is. And it's all about who they were to us. And if, if it is not, if the person hasn't died and then you reconnect with them 15 years later, you suddenly don't know if they've just changed or if they never were the person that you knew, but they have come to take on this mythology in your head and And that that, that's the only truth, you know, that you can't return to another kind of truth because even the person themselves can't say to you, yes, that you got it right because the 15 years since may have changed that person so that they don't even remember that you had it right, even if you really did. And I think that she is grappling with that sense of because she can't encounter Marlena these 20 years hence and have Marlena respond to her, it makes it even harder because she she doesn't want to make it all about herself. Like, she wants this to be an homage to Marlena, but in some ways, all the people in our lives are only kind of characters of our own making. Right.
3: This is why I love so much that, that Julie Bunton chose to create the story arc in the way that she did so that she could actually reflect on these things somewhat explicitly but nowhere near heavy-handedly for instance, with the omissions chapter
0: of that chapter, <laughs> uh,
3: you know, which I think it was perfect that it just happened once. It sort of let us know this is actually, you know, a, a, an appendix to every one of these chapters. There are things I'm leaving out. There are things I'm, you know, forgetting. There are things that just are, you know, take more precedence in my memory. And so everything else sort of gets filled in to connect the dots between those things. So I think I think that that speaks to the truth of what you just said, Sid, and how I I thought the book so beautifully did that by making this choice to not hold us in suspense as to what happens, but really to take us through the journey of someone remembering what happened and really, more importantly, perhaps what it meant.
4: And, And in addition, I think even at the time they're living their lives together, they're creating a shared mythology. In the way that you do when you're young, in the way that you do when you are sad, when you are unhappy, when you are vulnerable and in pain. And these girls are so vulnerable. There are these great paired moments on page 140 and 141 that really epitomize that mythology to me. So at the top of 140, Kat says, together we had power. We were capable of revenge. Like I said, the two of us made one perfect, un, can't say it on the radio, (laughs) girl. Nothing could hurt us as long as we weren't alone. And as we see in the book, that's not true, but it's such a sustaining myth. And it's a myth they create together that gives them such comfort. So on page 141, Marlena asks Kat to tell her a story, and she says... Tell me a story about us and make it good. Give us knives or something. Make us strong. And that shared act of storytelling, while of course it can't truly protect them, again, gives them some hope in the middle of everything that they're struggling with.
0: Well, that seems like a perfect note to end on. Jessica and Sam, uh, as ever, it's been a revelation talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you.
4: Always happy to be here.
0: I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Sunny Carido recommends the book Goldie Vance by Hope Larson, illustrated by Brittany Williams.
2: Hi, I'm Sunny Carido. A children's librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here to recommend and review the children's graphic novel, Goldie Vance, Volume 1, written by Hope Larson and drawn by Brittany Williams. Escape chilly Connecticut for sunny Florida. Lose yourself in the ultra-bright gold and coral and turquoise of a 1950s resort town. If you were to casually flip through Volume 1 of Goldie Vance, you could easily mistake it for a teeny bopper comic like the old Archie series, with its old-fashioned clothing styles and hair flips. But at heart, Goldie Vance is a thrilling detective story, with political intrigue, Cold War spies, and a healthy dose of speed racer-esque drag racing. The daughter of a resort hotel's manager and a nightclub mermaid, Goldie considers herself Gal Friday to the hotel's detective. Despite his misgivings at having a teenager horning in on his cases, it's clear who has the brains in this operation. The story races around town, showing us the seedy underbelly, class struggles, and an undercurrent of timeless teenage troubles. Hope Larson imbues her characters with charm and realistic complexity. You can't totally hate Goldie's nemesis, Sugar, and Goldie herself plays fast and loose with the law, though her heart is always in the right place. While Goldie Vance is appropriate for sixth graders and up, it's also squarely where the fandoms of Veronica Mars, Mad Men, and Nancy Drew intersect. A modern sensibility runs through the period trappings. The multicultural cast and Goldie's sweet infatuation with a cool record store clerk chick make it part of the vanguard of diverse books for kids. This comic is not to be missed. You can check it out from the New Haven Free Public Library, or you can use our great Hoopla service to read it on your computer or mobile device. Hoopla has a Zoom technology that makes it really easy to read comics on your device providing you with numerous viewing options from the full page to each individual panel, including a panel-to-panel navigation. However you find her, I know when you do, you'll love Goldie Vance.
0: Thanks, Sonny. On our next show, airing April 19th, we'll be talking about the new novel, All Grown Up, first with the author, Jamie Attenberg, and then with my guests, Alice Baumgartner and Deborah Cantrell. This book just hit the national bestseller lists so you know this is an episode you won't want to miss. Get the book from your public library or your local independent bookstore today and make sure to tune in. As ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode of Book Talk or any other on Facebook or Twitter or email me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. You can listen to old episodes or see what's coming up on our website, booktalkradio.net. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you.